Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dream. Business can sometimes seem mostly exploitation and even evil, even though we have so many available counterexamples. And today, for Spirit in Action, we'll dig in and try to find the ways in which business can do good instead of just doing well. Robert Pearson is an engineer who has seen a wide swath of business from the inside. After serving small businesses in a number of different jobs, Rob rose to the position of systems engineer, and the spiritual side of his work led him to get a Master of Ministry degree from Earlham School of Religion. He recently wrote an article in Western Friend called Do Quakers Mean Business?, in which he confronts our stereotypes of business, examines the history of business as a tool for doing good, and explores the possibilities of harnessing this power today. Robert Pearson joins us by phone from Colorado. Rob, it's wonderful to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Well, thanks, Mark. Glad to be here. Now, I saw your article. It was in the Western Friend, and for those listening, you can see about that on westernfriend.org. The article was, Do Quakers Mean Business? And it's a collection of articles related to functioning in the world, I guess you'd say. This happens to be the first one in the collection. It's very interesting for me, my emotional reaction to business. I've had my own small business for a long time, and I understand, Rob, that you've been involved in working in small business for ages. Yes, that's true. It's small and medium-sized. In spite of that, I have a prejudice against businesses. Yes, many of us do. Because we know the evils of large corporations, or maybe the good things they do too. I'm not sure. What's your overview of business, good or bad, evil or blessing? Well, I think this is one of those cases where you can go to either extreme and get stuck there. I think there's a lot of people we run into every day who have such a positive opinion of business in a sort of underlying way. They sort of trust their lives to a bunch of businesses around them. On the other hand, they're very skeptical of business on every level. I mean, if you meet people on the street, they basically say, I don't trust anybody. I don't trust my insurance company. I don't trust the people who are fixing my car. So you can have both attitudes at the same time really be into figuring that business is the main way we live our lives and at the same time be completely distrustful of it. I'm sort of advocating we, we look at a different dimension from that and say, well, where can businesses be forces for good? Work on our own action in businesses help the good and try to stop making it in a sort of an us versus them situation where businesses are on one side and us on the other, especially in religious communities where I think that happens a lot. You mean you think in religious communities there's specifically a, a prejudice against businesses? I think so. I think it goes all the way back, particularly in the Christian tradition, to this idea that there's the world out there 
and then there's the faith or the world of faith over here, and the two are set against one another. And we can't help but feel if we have that sort of mindset, and that comes from thousands of years of being brought up in that tradition, that when things start to go wrong, well, the evil is out there, and it's out there in this worldly business community. And even though we make our livelihoods in it, somehow that's associated with badness and with worldliness and with everything that's wrong, and we need to retreat from that into a religious haven for, for goodness. And is this connected with the idea pretty commonly held that love of money is the root of all evil or that you can't serve both God and mammon? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's it's interesting because that certainly is one of the large messages that comes through for people who are in uh, Christian tradition of one kind or another, if they actually read the Christian text, which of course not everyone does anymore, but it definitely is in there and it leads to this, the suspicion that money-making itself is an evil. I think the texts are pretty clear that they are very suspicious. The Christian texts are very suspicious that you can get caught up in this idea of making money, and money becomes an end to itself. You can get caught up in serving the system that only propagates itself and has no other values. I think those things resonate clearly through it, but it leaves open the question of, well, we still do make a living somehow at some level, and we still do depend on other people around us. Paul was a tent maker. People needed tents, right? There's still that part of it that you have to have some way of making a living and some way of serving the world in a very practical way as well as in a religious way. It doesn't answer that tension. It just puts it out there and says this is a, a fundamental tension that you make it so attracted and so caught up in things that you lose your way. Is this a tension that's only happening out there in the religious circles or other people, or is this a tension within Robert Pearson as well? Oh, absolutely a tension within Robert Pearson as well. Thank you. Yes, I think the reason why I'm so interested in this topic is because it's a very deep struggle. I have been involved in, again, as, you, as we pointed out earlier, small businesses, but mostly technology businesses. My background is in science and engineering. Straight out of college, I felt the dilemma of, well, the academic world itself is one kind of system I didn't want to get caught out there in. But the business world at that time, the things that was being open to me were geophysical jobs offshore working on oil rigs that were not very appealing, or other what seemed to me even at that time very destructive activities in terms of extractive use of resources without very much plan for the future or, or concern. So I was really at a loss, and I had no spiritual advisors that told me how to navigate those waters. And I've found by working in small businesses, at least I am closer to the problem, I think, and able to struggle with it day to day and with my peers and allow them some freedom to struggle with it too. I think the experience of working with teams of engineers who very much want to do good as well as doing well, I think that has been a very formative experience for me because I find that they want to work for a good enterprise and doing good things, and they're not quite sure how to get there. Part of your article, and again, the article is Do Quakers Mean Business? It's from Western Friend. You can find them on the web at westernfriend.org. It's their May-June 2014 article. You do a little bit of tracing of history, and I wonder if you could give us an overview. Now, you look in the article, Quakers' attitudes, but also societal attitudes. Could you talk about, is there a definite flow of attitudes, a, a trail of positive-negative attitudes about business? There is, and I'm probably a little less qualified to talk the general case and talk the Quaker case, but I do think they wrap around one another. 
because Quakers started in the 1600s very much as a reaction against not just, I would say, the spiritual system of the day, the church system of the day, but also against the economic system of the day. And the two were not unrelated. It definitely was a time when the two things were pretty closely intertwined. And, and the particular entry point for that for Friends was just, and Friends by Friends I mean Quakers, we also use our name Friends for shorthand, the entry point for that was that Quakers saw that their ministers were being trained and were part of an economic system where the ministers did extremely well, often at the expense of their much poorer people in their congregations, and were supported from a larger economic system that, that supported that whole system. And so they're very critical of all aspects of society. And yet, despite that criticism, despite that sense of tension with the society around them, Quakers went in very large numbers into business in the end. I think this was part of what was going on at the time with the rise of science, the rise of other very rational ways of dealing with the world and looking at things. Quakers, along with a lot of scientists at the time, saw God expressed in nature, not somewhere out in the world uh, separate from nature, but also something that could be experienced directly in gardens and in taking care of nature and using nature for beneficial purposes. And so they got involved in practical trades, everything from making clothes, making gloves, to making ironworks, iron materials of one thing or another. They brought a very large pacifist and, and alternative stance to what they did. So, for example, if they went into a community or they lived in a community, famous examples in England, where they found that there were great iron deposits, well, what had those iron deposits been used for? Well, they'd been used for making cannonballs. And that was basically the largest economic force in the country. And, of course, if there was a war going on, people did well because <laughs> they made cannonballs. And if the war was not going on, there was no work, and everyone was extremely poor. And so they said, well, we don't want to make cannonballs even if there is a war, and we want to be able to employ people even if there isn't a war and convince them there's another way to live. And so they started making pots and pans, you know, practical utensils out of the iron that was available. And as a result, grew up a great industry in just very practical day-to-day -day utensils. And because that industry was doing so well, they began to work on ironworks in a larger sense of making trains and the first lines, the first railway lines that connected different ports to these communities that were making these kind of utensils and made a bigger industrial world through their actions using making bridges, making train lines, that kind of stuff. And as a result of having to finance those things, they went into banking and became a sort of a network of different financing operations for, for what they had going on, also holding people to very strict account. So I hope that gives some sense of the rise of how they got into these things and how it sort of paralleled and sort of motivated the Industrial Revolution that was going on at the same time. It's a kind of an interesting process that a lot of people look back on and say, wow, that really was sort of the core seed of what gets things growing out in a networked manner. And the Quakers very much formed a network of interrelated enterprises with one another. And so they created the first sort of business networks and sort of banking and finance networks. And then they weren't exclusive about it. They opened it up to others who had good projects. As time went by, those things grew large and in some sense grew unmanageable to some of the Quaker ideas or to the way they had been managed very closely in the past. So you get, you get to a point where the enterprises somewhat to start to take on that life of their own, as we now think of it in the modern world, enterprises sort of seem to have gone beyond their creators. But you still see a lot of those Quaker managers trying to run them as highly an ethical manner as possible. So for example, they would say, 
okay, I've got now a large number of workers, and I see that those workers now are suffering from everything from where they live, the kind of accommodations that they live in. If they can't afford something decent for their wages, and if they can, it's inside of these very industrial urban centers now, to the fact that they had nothing like modern health insurance or retirement or any of those benefits. And so the Quakers started to put those kind of benefits in place. They said, well, really, what work is about and what industry is about is creating an, an environment that works for the workers as well as for the products that they're being made. So they became innovators, and a number of times they're remembered, especially for their chocolate, you know, a number of Quakers who had been into tea and other products like that eventually went to chocolate because they considered it a very beneficial product, something that was much better than people drinking alcohol and that people were just as inclined to drink. <laughs> so uh, they went into chocolate products, and in the first chocolate products, you can follow this story in something like Deborah Cadbury's account of the whole Cadbury family, which is called Chocolate Wars. The whole chocolate industry grew up around making this supposedly beneficial product. Now, we can argue how beneficial that product has been in the long term. <laughs> no argument from yeah, me. Yeah, it works for you. It <laughs> works for me, too. It's also a great topic to talk to people about industry about because everybody wants to talk about chocolate, even if they don't want to talk about business. <laughs> um, but they grew very large, and they grew very successful, and so they started putting in these real social innovations about building their own little towns out in the country because they had, a, again, the same feeling that people should be out connected to nature and not stuck in industrial squalor somewhere in the city and should have decent living accommodations, should have places to get out and play sports and things like that. So they built up whole model cities which still exist in England, and people go and visit and are still impressed by people eventually were to own their own homes which was a novel idea. People who were workers were expected to have retirement and have sick leave, and people were to pitch in in mutual help societies, what we'd now call insurance. So they came up with some of these innovations as ways of constantly dealing with the ethics of the situation they were faced with as things grew in scale. Now, I think they sort of reached a turning point at the end of the 1800s because as they grew in scale and actually took on more and more of these social innovations, they reached a point where people were actually, Quakers in particular, were writing about the economic situation and saying, why is there still so much poverty? If we're, if we're doing so well on this industrial revolution, if we've got these businesses that are so productive, if we've got people trained up, why is it that we still suffer from poverty? And in fact, the poverty situation seems to be getting worse. Unfortunately, their conclusions were that you know, the paternalistic approach of businesses providing these benefits was insufficient that it was never going to be able to solve these very large-scale social problems that lead to poverty um, and lead to classes of people having very different amounts of wealth and power. So they basically said this is, this is something that can only be solved at the societal, at the political level, at the government level. And so a lot of friends, the Quakers, turned their attention to the political scene and to advocating for reforms at a higher level. Well, interestingly enough, one of the outcomes of this is that the general society was also sort of awakening to this awareness, and the trouble was now businesses sort of began to look like the crooks and the problem, and in many cases they were. There's no reason to excuse a lot of the people who had very poor ethics, one might say, in terms of how they treated their workers or their environment. But at the same time, the Quakers had come out of an environment where they were trying to do as well as they could on the individual business scale, but as they brought the spotlight into what can we do as a whole, business began to look like the enemy, and in some ways, government, or at least advocacy, and the kind of protest movements we have today began to look like the way to go. 
And those protest movements increasingly turned their ire against the evils of some businesses. And so business became the bad guy. So one of the strange side effects of Quakers becoming so successful was they sort of undermined their own success in the sense of making business as a whole suspect. So it's an interesting turn of events, and I think Quakers, and I think religious organizations as a whole, have not kind of recovered from this yet. They're sort of still struggling with the aftermath of, well, you know, a very simple model that says, well, businesses are on the bad side of the equation, and we should be able to do something about it. But then you have two choices. You can sort of retreat, as religions often do, and say that's the evil world. Or you can heavily engage, and then a lot of times you sort of can lose your religious way by very sort of overactive activism. I think Merton is known particularly for having warned people against that, that you can get so lost in your activist stance that you lose track of what you're doing. So that's a very short capsule of how we sort of evolved over time to the point where business became large, business became powerful force for good and bad, but the tide of opinion sort of had to do something with it and put it on the bad side of the equation and, and ironically made government relatively good in the sense that it could do something about the problem if we could just get government to behave, <laughs> forgetting that government itself is a very large system. So we're left in this interesting modern world that we're in now. Well, there's all kinds of points along the way that I want to talk about to you, both within this Quaker world, but really how that reflects how our society is in general has changed. You know, we had the Industrial Revolution in the midst of what you're talking about, and we've had this corporate development, which is really, you know, end of the 1900s up until today, which have gone into hyper-international corporations, yeah. which so changes the groundwork. I was told along the way that capitalism, as it was originally conceived by the founders of our country, they're talking about farms, large right. farms. That right. That's what capitalism is about. You give people the capital of their farm and they produce the products that therefore enrich the world, which is so different from the idea that you have uh, internet connecting the nations and uh, your Google and what you produce is bits and bytes uh, <laughs> going on electrical cable. <laughs> so very different. Yeah, very, very different. But it's interesting because I think we're still comfortable with that original model in the sense that so many people are willing to provide capital for very small enterprises, micro-enterprises around the world one way or another, sometimes for return, sometimes just for free because it's part of building up the overall productive society. And maybe the word productive hasn't been quite as corrupted as some of the other words, but maybe not. And actually, the issue of Western Friend is called on production. And there's a phrase that's been going around for the last few years. You know, we, we have to honor and be thankful to, and what we really have to support is the job creators. The workers, they don't matter so much, but <laughs> the job creators. Yeah. So even when we don't like businesses, we might like labor, but I don't know if we really like labor too because they're commonplace. I, there's uh, so many complex prejudices involved in any of this. And I'd question that whole thing about job creation. Job creation is, boy, such a, such a phrase now. It's used to excuse almost anything. I certainly have watched it locally as people, the number one thing they'll say is, oh, this, this industry is moving in and it's going to create jobs. Well, I live in a desert, and if that industry is going to exhaust all the water, the fact that it created some jobs temporarily is not actually the ultimate productive activity. 
it's really interesting how right now that the whole jobs thing, creating jobs, I have a suspicion, and it may come from my own Quaker roots at this point, a suspicion of overly vesting authority with too much power and saying, oh, yes, this company comes in and creates jobs. That's the benefit we want. And the jobs at that point sound just like this commodity again. But it's not a real commodity. It's, it's not like it's talking about the thing of value that's created that then makes the livelihood possible for all the people involved, both the people working every day and the people trying to manage the whole business or industry. And, and we lose focus on that. And one of the things I find refreshing about going back and thinking again about the Industrial Revolution is, okay, what are the true things of value we need now? What are the things that make a difference in the long term? And can those things be where we put our energies and therefore become employment? I want to talk a little bit more about chocolate. You hit on chocolate along the way, and it is a favorite topic for all of us. I had the question posed to me along the way because I didn't grow up a Quaker. I grew up in Wisconsin, so I learned Quaker culture from the side. But I was told that there was a product known as Quaker beer. Did we know what that thing was? And the answer is chocolate, and I think specifically it was hot chocolate along the way, because that's the way that chocolate was originally consumed, not as what we candy that we think about now. I was told, and would you confirm or deny this, that a number of the companies or the, the individuals, the factories that ended up producing chocolate, they converted some of them from producing alcoholic beverages. That is, they went from being a brewery to production of chocolate. Do you know of that history yourself? Uh, no, I can't confirm. I haven't heard that particularly, but it certainly fits. I mean, it certainly fits. The Quakers would have been more than happy to do exactly that. That was their intention. That was their hope early on. But in fact, this was the kind of drink that would replace alcohol and get rid of some of the social ills connected with, with alcoholism. So they would have been very glad to take over those kind of production facilities and use them for chocolate. But I haven't heard that particular story. You make reference to a book that I actually haven't read. I, I saw it maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago. I think it, it compares Pennsylvania meeting houses to the Puritan, Massachusetts, whatever, counting houses. And the question was, which of those influences most carried for and controls our country? I think the conclusion of the book was that the Puritans won out, the Quakers lost, that the kind of Quaker gentle spirit. It was business, but it was business with social values that the Puritan, I don't know, maybe more hard-nosed. I, I don't want to characterize it too harshly, but it, it's money over spirit is how I see it. So you referred, I believe, to that book or to that debate. What is your perspective on those historical roots in our country? Yeah, you raise a couple things there. The book I think you're referring to is by Frederick Tolles and called Meeting House and Counting House. It's primarily concerned with what happened in the very early 1700s up until about 1750, 1760, and primarily in sort of the Quaker culture of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, which of course was one of the major, if you want to call anything a city at that time, it was certainly the major city and trade center of what became the United States later on. It's an interesting history because it does sort of start from the Quaker sense that there were sort of two plantations. One Wednesday said it was the two plantations, the inner plantation and the outer plantation. Again, very much at a time when you thought in agricultural terms that you need to cultivate both. 
You need to cultivate the outer plantation and have good things that you were growing in the world, and you had to cultivate the inner plantation where your own soul was a matter of concern or your own relationship to the divine. And the two things had to be kept in balance. His argument, I think you correctly categorized, is that by the end of that period, Quakers had come to the conclusion that it was a failed experiment. There was no way to keep those two in balance. And in some ways, they went into a withdrawal period from the world and said this whole engagement experiment was a mistake. Pennsylvania itself is often called the holy experiment because William Penn intended it to be ruled by the kind of sort of spiritual sense that he found among friends, but also open to other religions, and therefore see if you could have this very democratic place that had some of those ambitions written into its, its very nature. At the end of the period that Tolles is talking about, basically all the Quakers withdrew en masse from politics in Pennsylvania and left it to others to govern. And so they sort of said, this is just not going to work. We can't hold this tension anymore. And others who are not as opposed to war and not as opposed to some of the things that we see going on are going to have to just take it over. We can no longer hold this tension. So it's an interesting period, and it did affect America as a whole. I think it's a fair thing to say that these experiments in Pennsylvania certainly influenced what became the United States of America in terms of the Constitution and number of rights, freedom of religion, other things that were engaged in that, a number of the democratic principles and how things are governed. But that late stage when the United States was formed was always already after this sort of period of withdrawal where Quakers themselves had said, I, we don't know, we think this is a failed experiment. <laughs> And so what are the lessons from that historical event? We're talking about something that's, what, 250 years ago. Right. What are the lessons for today, for the society in general, or maybe for religious, spiritual groups? How do you do that engagement? You stay engaged, you get out, or you're going to get filthy if you stay involved in business and government and enterprise? I think that's the core question. And I, I think attempting to answer it one way or the other is probably the problem as opposed to the answer. Yeah, again, I have been frustrated in my lifetime by the sense of withdrawal, the sense of religious withdrawal from more and more of the world, what I would what I would call almost religious isolationism as opposed to engagement inside of the business world, inside of the political world. Now, we see, of course, the, what we would call the far right has been, in a certain way, very engaged. I would give them something for that. But I would say that movement has a certain limitation in the way it goes about that, whereas there's a core spiritual movement in the entire country, a core spiritual need that needs to be expressed both in the livelihood-making side of things and the governance side of things that is being held back because it does not know how to interact in those spheres. And we don't encourage it to interact in those spheres. So withdrawing entirely doesn't seem to be a good answer. I think the examples both in the 1750 and turn of the 20th century say that you can withdraw too far and in fact lose a lot of your power because you're questioning the nature of that power to begin with. And perhaps that's always appropriate, questioning the nature of that power that you happen to have in your hands because of your privilege or how things came about. But at the same time, to withdraw from that power entirely and leave it to others to wield is not a faithful response either. So there has to be some balance where you keep trying to say we are going to be engaged in our society because we cannot not engage. 
You mentioned earlier, Rob, that there were a number of businesses. You mentioned the ironwork business, and we've talked about chocolate. Are there other ones? You you mentioned banks, uh, Barclays Bank, or we know Cadbury Chocolates. Or can you attach names to them so we can see how pervasive this influence at least was at one point? One of the ones that always surprises people is Clark Shoes, which is still a fairly uh, high end but fairly well respected uh, shoemaker. And it was funny because, as I mentioned in the article, one of the things that got my attention and made me write the article was I was actually invited by another group who was studying the chocolate wars, studying the chocolate history, and they were just astounded by the number of names they recognized. And Clark Shoes was one that came up, Barclays Bank was one that came up, and so those are big names. But their experience was that those names were ones that they still had some modicum of trust compared to other organizations, even though they've gone through this modern process of becoming publicly owned and publicly managed, there was still this residual level of trust they had for Clark Shoes. And someone brought up how Barclays had responded to the scandal where someone had actually lost billions of dollars. They had actually gone into quite depth in terms of their own actions to try to both right the wrong and to prevent it from happening again. And this is a, a person who was a Methodist said to me, well, you know, that's the kind of action we're looking to take in the world. You know, and it's interesting that there's still this residual force somehow embedded in some of these companies that can make a difference. We'll talk more about this in a moment with Rob Pearson. First, I want to mention that you are listening to Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org. On that site, you'll find almost nine years of our programs for free listening and download. You'll find the places where you can connect to us via iTunes or our RSS feed, etc. On that site, you'll also find comments. You'll find links. You can post comments, and we love two-way communication. So I've said my words now we want to hear your words also you'll find a place to leave donations that is how we fund this enterprise it's been going for nine years it's full-time work your help makes all the difference and even more so i want to encourage you to support your local community radio station they provide an invaluable slice of both news and music that you get nowhere else i love locally grown things and community radio stations are exactly the kind of things that we all should support so please support them first Again, we're speaking with Rob Pearson. He's the author of an article, Do Quakers Mean Business? It's in the most recent Western Friend. You'll find them on the web at westernfriend.org, the May-June article. 2014 is the one that you want to find, and there's a whole list of articles. Let me mention a, a couple of the other names so you'll see why this is of such importance to society as a whole. Simplicity and our complex economy. There's one called The Miracle of Friendly Water, or Reluctantly Facing an Inconvenient Truth, or Nuclear Waste, One Million Years from Now. There's a whole number of articles there that will be applicable to you, whether you're Quaker or not, that the spiritual issues of our time are all being wrestled with there. Rob Pearson wrote the first article in the collection. He's a system engineer for a technology company. On the other hand, he's also a member of Albuquerque Friends Meeting. He writes, he does photography, he leads workshops. And I want to ask a little bit right away, Rob, about some of your background, because I think you and I have some things in common. Technology is part of my background, and I also have this business side. I've had my own small business, and I'm also spiritually oriented. And most people think those things don't go together well, technology and spirituality. Give us your history, if you would, Rob. 
Well, Mark, I started out again and sort of started studying science and engineering, and I was fascinated by the areas of science and engineering, both which in their own way are, uh, reflect a divide between the theoretical and the abstract and the practical and hands-on. As I got out and started working, I ended up at uh, first, because my background was in geophysics originally, I ended up working out in California at the U.S. Geological Survey, which of course is a very large organization but spread around doing a lot of small projects. Very fun work, but what really was coming up at the time was computers. And so I got involved in computers and computer programming, computer processing at a time when that was the great thing to do. <laughs> Opened up a lot of doors. Ended up in Albuquerque working for a small business that at that time was mostly doing small data processing projects. And then uh, science support projects, building up small instruments that were measurement instruments for rotation or acceleration, things like that that could be used in many different applications. That, of course, brought up immediately the problem that, oh, well, these things are used for military applications as well as for commercial applications. They're used as much for people who want to test something on the military side as for people who want to put them into crash dummies and actually test something that could help people uh, survive crash enough to build better cars. And so I was struggling with those issues right from the get-go, and that's really never stopped. It's been a fun ride of working on technology, but as time has gone by, my interests have really come to be how to work with people to get projects together and how to work with people to envision new uses of technology that are actually more productive and not just follow the buck. Because we know where the buck leads. It leads the people who want to have immediate results, often in a military direction. And so you rose within the business world. I mean, you started out maybe as a, a technician at a lower level, but you went up the food chain. That's right, if you want to call it the food chain, although I, it's been interesting. I've, I've, right from the get-go, I saw it as the service chain, you know, places where I could serve the, uh, the people who were working at the company better. Yeah, I started from coding and programming. I got into a bunch of image processing work, and that made me build up image processing systems, and then I helped people build those systems while I was managing those projects. Then I was managing whole contracts. Then I was managing a small site. Then I got involved in business development and operations at the company. I, um, basically, I've done all of the jobs at the top of the company except for being CEO, which I've told everybody I don't want to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I've worked in the number two capacity and in what are clearly leads in different areas on both management, uh, business development. What I finally found my niche was in systems engineering, which is an odd combination. It's a bit like the conductor is to an orchestra. It's the person who tries to get engineers to work together on the same sheet of music, to work to produce something of beauty together as opposed to individually doing the best possible job which can often lead to things that don't quite come together right. So systems engineering turned out to be a very good fit to me, partly for the same reasons I went into these other management functions, is that it's a job where you work both with the technology and with the people, and neither aspect can be lost. And people's ability to see themselves as part of a team is crucial to get things done. There's one other part of your development that you didn't mention that I think is extremely relevant. At some point, you decided to go into the spiritual business. Yes, which of course is a very interesting thing to do if you're in an engineering business. I went back to the Earlham School of Religion and decided to get a Master of Divinity. Of course, that's what actually happened in the end, although in Quakerism we call it a Master of Ministry because we don't like mastering <laughs> divine very much. But the Master of Ministry program is what I went through at the time, all I knew was this very strongly led to um, 
try it. And I didn't know if it was going to lead all the way to getting the degree or not, or whether it was going to lead to a different life or not. I just knew it was something I had to do. One of the things that brought me to that was system engineering itself, because I'd been working with larger and larger groups of people. And I ended up finding that a great deal of what I was doing was pastoral care of one kind or another. Now, I don't want to make that sound too much like I'm getting into their personal lives and stuff, but calling out the best in people and calling out the best of what can be done in a situation and having people open up to the possibilities of how their life interacting with others is a positive thing and how they can be seen as a person in the middle of an organization. I found that people who were writing effectively about this actually were in the religious community. They were not in the engineering community. Engineers do not <laughs> write very well about pastoral care. <laughs> um, and yet it's really there. Um, if you look at definitions of system engineering, there's, there's a classic list to think of like 26 job descriptions that have to do with system engineering. But part of them are this sort of ability to organize and orchestrate and work with people to bring out a team's activity. A lot of those aspects are very close personal interaction and trust building. And it, it goes to people's root meaningfulness in their life, what they and the core find valuable and important. And sometimes it's very often encouraging people, if they're not finding that where they are, to move on and to not just try to fit in like a cog to the machine, not try to do something that's going to make them some money for a little while, but make them feel miserable in their life as a whole. So it, it can be both aspects of that, trying to get people to see one another as human and encouraging them to work to their highest potential wherever that takes them. Again, the company might not like to hear that sometimes. <laughs> you're, you're encouraging a good engineer perhaps to look elsewhere, but that's sometimes what it takes for the good of all. This perspective that you have, and you said you, you're getting it from literature, you're, you're seeing it written in other places, does that make you a real odd duck in the business world that you have that kind of thing? Is, or is it all supposed to be, you know, just work them to the bone and, you know, squeeze every drop of blood out of them and then discard them? Oh, gosh, yes. Well, there's two aspects of that, and perhaps this is why I still feel so much in struggle. There seem to be cycles in the business world as a whole that go back and forth and become more hard nails and tooth and claw, and then cycles where people realize that, yeah, well, that didn't help at all to focus in like that, and inevitably what you did is end up with someone who focused so closely on the financials and so closely on competing in a merciless way that you lost your good people and you lost your good opportunities and you, the customers are frustrated with you. So then the cycle switches back again, and it's like, oh, okay, that by itself is not enough to sustain and, and build a business and you get back into sort of a period of what I would call real core building inside the business, but also you're always forced back into constraints. It is a back and forth, and you are in an environment where you are driven by literally money that you can get from customers to build them things. That's a tough world because it's impacted by outside forces way out of everybody's control. So all I can say is that one is a dynamic, but the other part of being an odd duck is definitely being an engineer who says he's going to seminary. I don't recommend that <laughs> to people because the very first thing, of course, is you get the eyebrows raised and the very, the very strange look like, what is the matter with you? But then once people get over that, then eventually they'll ask you, like, oh, okay, so once you get done with seminary, you know, are you going to be a minister? That gets to be an even harder question, first of all, because among the Quakers that I have, there are no ministers, and there are certainly no paid ministers. <laughs> so the idea that you're doing it and you're going to get paid for a result doesn't work, and that, of course, really throws people. 
And then secondly, I say, well, actually, this seems to me, for my discernment, my work inside of a business like this, an engineering business, seems to be part of my ministry. And that, of course, really throws people <laughs> because it doesn't maintain that separation <laughs> of religion and world that we talked about earlier, that people really find so embedded in the way we think about the world. You know, one of the dynamic tensions that I've experienced in my life is you've spoken of kind of the liberal and the liberal Quaker prejudice against businesses, but in favor of art. So if you're going into social work or arts, you're one of the good people. And if you're going into business, then you must be one of those sucking the blood out of the poor, I guess. But interestingly enough, you know, 200 years ago, Quakers, because they shunned the arts, because the arts were so, they brought up the emotions so much, they brought us away from our, our deep centered, the place where you go om, that they were actually suppressed. And so it's kind of flipped in the last 150 years where arts and business have switched places in our world. So do you have an art side to you, too, since you obviously went to get Master's of Ministry? Yeah, I do. I do have an art side. In fact, one of the other aspects of what I was very interested I no, I won't say that. I was surprised when I got to seminary to find out that one of the areas I was strongly led into was to figure out how my photography fit overall into my ministry, how in the world depicting or, or letting the world express itself to you as images was part of that, of trying to express the beauty and wonder of the world. It does connect back to my sort of background in science, which I think does root back to the same thing Quakers were experiencing, the sort of love of the world, love of nature as an expression of God. And I think that's one of the things that was inevitable there'd be this turn over time, although the early Quakers would have been shocked, back to expressive art. <laughs> yes, they would have thought it was horrible. But and they were and they were along with their Puritan friends at the same time who also were just dreadfully afraid of music, dancing, <laughs> images of any kind, really worried those were what were going to be the end of us. And I think we've come into a time where now there's some openness to, ah, no, but some of these things help us to actually see and experience the world, and therefore to see and experience part of the divine that we've been missing. So it, it, is, it is a true reversal. And one of the things I'm glad you caught in the article is I think it is incredibly ironic how much of a reversal has happened with the suspicion of business, which would have been one of the few things that early Quakers were not suspicious of <laughs> <laughs> and, and are embracing of government. I mean, we don't want to call it that, but a lot of the non-governmental organizations and the influencers that we have, the different organizations to lobby of one kind or another, as well as our expression in the arts, as well as how many current friends, I think, are lawyers or involved in that kind of activity. All of those were horrible, horrible things to be involved in when you were in the 1600s as <laughs> friends. And, and it traces back to the sense of not being true to yourself. At that time, the idea that you had to put on a face to be a politician, well, that still applies today in many cases. Or to be a lawyer, you had to represent something that was not necessarily who you were. And the same thing with that fear of the arts. Well, the arts, you had to put, literally take on another character to be an actor and portray someone who you were not. So they could only see that as expressions of the kind of dishonesty that was just rife around them in the world as far as they were concerned. But I think there is, you know, by going back and forth between these extremes, we get to see the different sides of this and understand where expressions of truth can happen in different media that are unexpected.
one of the influences I understand of early Quaker involvement with business is the single price system, that that became the norm. Now, I don't know if that's overstating what influence the Quakers had, but I do know that they were shunning the idea that you would take people for whatever amount of money you could get from them. I've always enjoyed, by the way, bargaining when I lived in Africa as part of the Peace Corps. And when I travel, I enjoy that bargaining thing and try and get the best price. But Quaker said, no, there's one fair price. Here it is. You do it. Is it your sense that that actually did change the society or were they just one of many influences leading in that direction? Well, I never want to overstate the claim, but I think in this case, it's pretty close to being an accurate claim that the Quakers, in sort of their forcefulness in putting through that sort of revision of the way business was done, really did influence things in a very big way. They basically decided that that was the way to do business. Their shops did business that way. It really angered some people. It's funny to look back and see some of the reactions and, and see how it was thought in some ways despicable. And yet, from a business perspective, it was a very successful move because it gained a tremendous amount of trust. Whether people liked friends, like Quakers or not, they would go to their shops because they knew exactly how much something would cost. <laughs> and they could send their kids to those shops. And I do not think that's an exaggeration. I do not think it's an exaggeration that being able to send your kid out to buy something at a Quaker shop, the level of trust was such that you know they would not be cheated. It changed things. And I think that's a reasonable place to claim it changed things for the better. I do understand, like you're saying, you could go to the office and say, oh, wait, you know, they were so hard frozen. They got so hard over about these ideas that you can see now why there's such a love of experiencing the bargaining process again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure my wife is very glad. She hates the bargaining when I've taken her to Africa or Mexico or whatever. She, no, it's just give me a price. I give you whatever you ask. Okay, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> it's just... Well, I tried to. I tried to convince my son, who loves going to flea markets like a, like a young boy would and finding bargains. I've tried to convince him that this is something that you can do and that people really do have a reasonable expectation. You'll go back and forth and say, this is what I think it's worth and would like it. But I've also tried to convince him the other way because we walked up the street one day and bought a beautiful Lego set. for I, I think he got it for a dollar or something like that, and he had more. And I convinced him, and he was quite willing to walk back up the street and give them more because <laughs> he felt it was not a fair price. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> and that's a very honorable thing. And I think, and again, that way of looking at things, like there is some sense of, of some sense of fairness in that, even in an open bargain. Now, you've been talking about Quakers because you're Quaker, I happen to be Quaker, and this is part of a collection in the Western Friend, again, website, westernfriend.org, in their May-June edition. It's called On Production. Now, you've talked about Quakers is it your sense that other religious groups did the same kind of journey? Did the Methodists do the same thing? Did the Unitarians do this coming on, the Congregationalists? Did they all go through these kind of evolutions about business, about in the world, being out of the world? Or is this uniquely a Quaker thing? Is this really, I, I had you on because I thought it would be a universal lesson for people to be going through. Right. I think there are very universal things going on right now. I think it cuts across all the branches, all the religious branches and the spiritual-seeking branches of trying to find some answer to this dilemma of how do we actually operate in the world. And I think that is not a Quaker thing in particular at all. I think there's a, there's a wide struggle. 
one of the evidence I think of that is, and you don't have to go for You can read the Harvard Business Review, and you, if you read between the lines, because they don't like to talk about these things in religious terms, you will find religious themes being raised in terms of how companies are organized, how they're managed, how decisions are made, how business is done, what the long-term versus short-term dynamics are, and what ultimately is productive. It's funny, I mean, because you can go there, and if you read with a religious eye, you'll find these things being discussed very guardedly (laughs) in the Harvard Business Review. And there are definitely books coming out from others who are not friends talking about leadership and soul work as leadership and the soul at work, that is used by a friend, the soul at work. You know, integrity being a growth market. I'm looking at some other books they have. But there's there's a number of books coming out that are looking at how businesses can be run and operated and how we look at businesses as a positive force or institutions in general. The one thing that I think we have to keep in mind in talking about a lot of religious or what makes a distinction about Quakers or why Quakers might be helpful in opening the discussions now are, again, this really difficult divide that has existed for a long time between the world and religion. And that could cut much more deeply. Even among the historic peace churches, I think that's a good place to go, for example, if you think of the historic peace churches, which are you know, Mennonites, Church of the Brethren, Quakers. They're very different in how do they get to the peace testimony. They're very different in how they look about the relationship to the world and how we relate to the world. And so models of how we relate to the world and, I would say, ministry in the world, whether our ministry can be in very practical hands-on ways in terms of what we make and how we work with others, what we produce, what we take into account in terms of how we're harming the world or harming other people or engaging in business, our kind of practices. That's in conversation across the board among denominations. But I think if we listen to the different perspectives from the different faiths, we're likely to hear different aspects that will help us overall understand how to move forward. We need some moving forward, that's for sure. Yes, yes. I, I don't. I, my editor and I struggled over one word in my article about, how, and it basically came down to what, how strong an adjective to use about modern capitalism, and it's how strongly to hold your critique of modern capitalism and, and business structure that we have today. And I both want to suggest that yes, we really need to pay attention to some really difficult, fundamental problems inside here. On the other hand, we just we cannot go too far and reject the whole thing as if somehow we can magically put something else in its place. One of the thoughts that I had, by the way, is it's not that business is bad, but one of the things we all know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And as business has gotten more and more powerful, as it's gotten larger and larger, affected more people, could have sway over our government officials, etc., that's where the opening to corruption and disregard, disconnection comes in. So that's my perspective on it. It doesn't seem to work the same way when an artist becomes better and better. On the other hand, maybe maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe as an artist like Justin Bieber, he does get more powerful all of a sudden. He gets corrupted too. But my sense is that we fear businesses that get very large, get very powerful multinational corporations, etc., because of the damage that they can do, and it, which is an influence of being so large and disconnected from roots. Absolutely. So how do you, how do you combat that, right? 
I think it's interesting looking at some examples out of history. One of the ones that really sort of stuns people is, I think it's Henry Cadbury, one of the Cadburys basically getting to the point where he realized how successful personally he was getting as a result of his business and basically called a meeting with the entire family and what at that time would have been the press corps, <laughs> but <laughs> would have been his, his employees and other interested people and basically said, look, I have made a ton of money. I am putting it all into a trust for the public good. My children are going to inherit some fixed small amount so that this does not become a problem for them in the future, either managing this company or doing other things. Now, that's a shocking approach. I mean, it's a shocking approach to modern sensibilities. But for him at that time, he was like, if this corrupts all the people that I have around me, including my family, there will be no future for this business and the money will all get wasted, which has been built up over the backs of people working and doing things over time, right? whereas it could be going to do good in a civil manner. So he created trust, which I've been told from people in England are still doing all sorts of social good today. What an abnormal thing to do from our current point of view, and what a wonderful thing to do. Wow. Let me see. I want to mention to our listeners one more program, someone I interviewed a couple of years ago. Her name is Judy Wicks. She's author of a book called Good Morning, Beautiful Business, The Unexpected Journey of an Activist, Entrepreneur, and Local Economy Pioneer. That's an article you want to listen to to complement this one. Her work was with the White Dog Cafe in Philadelphia. But today we've been speaking with Robert Pearson. He's a systems engineer with small business. He's got a wonderful background that makes you really what you're saying, Rob, so applicable to all of us. It, it doesn't seem high in the hoity-toity circles at all. It seems like a real person engaging with other real people trying to make a difference in the world. And that is just so inspirational. I thank you for your article in Western Friend. The article was called Do Quakers Mean Business? It was in the edition called On Production. You'll find it on the website, folks, at westernfriend.org. It's a May-June issue of 2014. Again, Rob, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, for doing the work up through business and giving us a business person that we can really want to emulate. Well, thank you, and thank you for your show. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.